We're so glad that you've tuned in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Matthew Brown, the college and young adult pastor here at Rolling Hills. We're in our series, Everyday Armor, and today we'll be focusing on several pieces of the armor of God and on why each part is integral in fighting our spiritual battles. Now, here's Pastor Nick. All right, good morning. I'm so glad that when we have those baptism moments, even at our other campuses, that right here when we get to watch them and see them, that you guys are clapping as if they can hear you because it's a celebration because we know the good thing that God is doing in the lives of people as they take their next step of faith in Christ. This series is called Everyday Armor. And when I first heard it, we had a little bit of a difficulty kind of coming up with a series title, like that catch that we're gonna say, hey, this is what this is called. And this is the hook that people are going to remember. And like when I first heard it, I was like, oh, Under Armour, that's a clothing brand, which by the way, you can always get on discount at Ross. Like don't go pay full retail somewhere. Like you can always find it cheaper somewhere else. We're not talking about the kind of armor that you wear as clothing, although it does feel like a tie. We're talking about the armor that God equips believers with to go into the battles that we all face. And and as a student pastor for a number of years, like more than a decade, working with middle school and high school kids, there were many, many moments like this where I I grabbed a group of people in the room, like middle school and high school kids, and like this number, and I would make them repeat after me. And then sometimes I went away to these big, huge camps, and I'm standing on the stage in front of like 600 to 1,000 students, and I'm like, okay, I want you guys to repeat after me, and you guys can actually do it this morning too. In this life, Excellent. I will have trouble. Like, I think there's this some sort of statement that somebody must have made to believers in Jesus Christ at some point in their life, like a, a bait and switch, kind of a hook moment to draw them in, where they, they made them feel like, okay, if I'll just believe in Jesus and put my hope and my faith and my trust in him, then somehow everything in life is going to be easy and always going to go my way. And like what I made as a commitment to a whole bunch of teenagers and to a whole bunch of adults, like wherever you are in your journey, is to never be that guy. Never be that guy that makes you think and feel and respond to this gospel good news of Jesus in such a way that thinks really falsely that, well, if I just get up and pray, if I just get up and read this word, if I just go to church on Sundays, if I just call myself a Christian and say that I have faith in the God of the Bible, then only good, safe easy experiences are going to come my way because you know what happens when you put only that kind of faith in Jesus? In this life, you will have trouble, and when it comes, you're not prepared to handle it. And what it makes you want to do is walk away and abandon the faith because you can't believe that somehow, if there is a great God in this universe who loves you and is called according to his purpose, then he would allow something difficult or something hard or something bad to happen in your life. Enter a passage that's all about the armor of God. If you've ever been one of those believers that just can't understand why anything difficult, why anything hard, why anything challenging would ever happen, then why would the Bible need a passage of Scripture that's about taking on the armor of God and readiness for the attacks that come in our lives? So if you have your Bibles, and I invite you to turn into the book of Ephesians. It's one of Paul's letters. We're going to go to the last chapter in that, chapter 6, and we're going to dive into the armor of God. And we're going to start back with the verses that we read last week and then take it a little further this week as we go specifically through each part of the armor. We're going to tackle a couple of them this week and then a couple of them next week and then close out the series knowing that God has something to say to each of us about who he is and who we're called to be and what it means to represent him well in the world. So Ephesians chapter 
6. Maybe you have it in a physical Bible. Maybe you've got it on a mobile device. Maybe you're just going to tune in on the screens. But we're going to start together in chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor. And if you're using a physical Bible and you've got a pen and you like to underline things, underline full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes is the word methodeia, and it literally means cunning schemes, the tactics that he uses in our lives. And it comes from a word that means journey. Because the enemy wants to take you on a path that you don't need to go on, and it wants to take you in a way that you don't need to get there. Like, he has a design. Like, we always say that God loves you and has a plan for your life. Well, the truth is that the enemy has a plan for your life, too. He wants to take you that direction according to his cunning schemes. Sometimes we can see them a mile away, and sometimes they are so subversive, we have no idea that we are under a spiritual attack. So the armor of God comes in handy. It says in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor. There it is again. The full armor, not half the armor. This is not like fashion faux pas where you're really scared in high school and you walk into a presentation that you got to make and you realize that you forgot to put pants on armor. This is literally the full armor. You want to come fully ready and dressed for battle. Take up the full armor of God. You can't even be missing a piece of it so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand. There's that word again, stand firm. Here it is again, stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. We've got full armor two times in this passage and we've got the word stand, not three, although that's how many you're going to count. But if you look at the word resist in the original Greek language, it's the same root word to stand and to resist against the attacks that the enemy throws at us. So right on the outset, we know that this is a full armor, and we have to take every single piece of it. It's in your notes this morning if you're following along and you like to fill in blanks or put it in on the mobile app. The armor of God is not a cafeteria menu. It's a fully composed dish. Now, I like a meat and three, especially in Tennessee, where you can walk through, and they've got like four different choices of meat, and they've got like 12 different choices of vegetable, and you can get a meat and two or a meat and three and go down the cafeteria line and pick the thing that you like best and avoid the thing that you don't like. It's like a school cafeteria or a Piccadilly where you're just walking through and picking and choosing the things that you want. It's the ultimate buffet line. Now, I'll confess that wife that you saw me pictured with a few minutes ago on our announcement about Valentine's Day, we've had 22 going on 23 Valentines together because this year we'll celebrate 21 years of marriage. And I'll confess that early in our married days where there were no kids and we could just go and do whatever we wanted to whenever we wanted to and like stay out late. There were no babysitters. That was a beautiful season of marriage. Six whole years. I loved it. We would just go on dates on a whim. So here we are going to like dinner and a movie. The movie starts at 630. She's like, where do you want to go to dinner? I was like, oh, I got an idea. And I pull into the Golden Corral. It's five o'clock on a Friday night at the Golden Corral. We were the youngest people in the Golden Corral by 40 years easily. (laughs) Everybody in there was old enough to be, it was okay, that's fine, whatever. And she's like, why are you taking me to the Golden Corral at five o'clock on a Friday night? I was like, hey, we're gonna each be able to get whatever we want. They've got like 10 different bars of food. You want Asian, they got Asian. You want Italian, they got Italian. And everybody wants a roll that's covered in bread. Like we can go get desserts for days and still make our movie time. 
The Word of God is not a cafeteria where you and I get to go pick and choose all the things we want. It's a fully composed dish at the chef's table. So years ago, I was in Seattle preaching a camp for a buddy of mine. Like, it was out in the redwoods, and it was beautiful. And then on the last night before I had to fly out the next day, he, he and his wife, they take me to this fantastic restaurant. We go and we sit down, and I realized right off the bat that this was a really fancy restaurant. The perk of being the camp speaker for a week is that they were going to pay. It was really kind of a cool deal. So we walk in, and I realize, well, they haven't given us a menu yet. And here they are. They just start bringing us food. We were doing the chef's experience where they picked the menu and gave us glorious food. We didn't pick it out ourselves, and we got to eat from the whole table. You see, a lot of us, we approach the Word of God the way that you approach a cafeteria menu. I'm just going to pick what I like best. Instead of coming to the table realizing that the great God of this universe has chosen what we get. Augustine said it, and I'll continue repeating it as long as I have breath in pastoral ministry. If I only believe what I like about the gospel, or or just the whole Bible in general, if I only believe what I like about the Bible, if I only eat the things that I like about Scripture and reject the things that I don't like, it's not the gospel I believe. It's not the Bible I believe. It's myself relying on my preferences and, and my choices I don't need just the pieces of the armor of God that look good with my everyday outfits. I need the whole thing. I don't need, just need the pieces of Scripture that are familiar and inviting and that make me feel good about myself and the world that we live in. I need the whole thing. Why? Because trouble, we already said it. It is never an if. It's always a when Trouble is never an if, it's always a when. And we swing the pendulum back and forth for a couple of different things and reasons. Like, I, and I go this route too. I go the Ephesians chapter six route where I realize that there is spiritual warfare going on all around me and that the enemy is scheming and that he has attacks. And I'm ready to blame even the traffic in Nashville and the ice that we experience. Oh, it's the devil's fault. He made the ice storm this morning. He created COVID-19 and he made my children misbehave. Like, I'm just ready to blame him for absolutely every single moment that I stub my toe in life. And conversely, I'll swing that pendulum back to the sovereignty of a great God and say fully confident that nothing that ever happens, even the worst of the worst of the worst, is ever outside the authoritative, permissive will of God. So if it went wrong, he allowed it. And I can go back and forth day after day of saying, well, the devil made me do it, or God certainly caused it or allowed it. Sometimes I just need to stand in the very center and say, whoops, I'm the one who made the mistake, and I'm the one who caused this, and I'm the one dealing with the consequences of the fallen world and my own dumb behavior. So sometimes the bad stuff, for sure, blame the devil. Sometimes the bad stuff, we can look squarely at God and saying, you caused this, you allowed this. You authored this for somehow my good, and somehow I have nobody to blame but myself or the people that I've chosen to be around in life. Sometimes it's just their fault too. But I look at the world around us and I say, there will be in this life trouble. We're never promised this free and easy life. Christians who literally think that nothing bad should ever happen to good people, first of all, there are no good people, and we could read those passages of Scripture and do a whole Bible study on what that means, but Christians who literally look at the world and are shocked when bad things happen to us or when bad things happen around us have clearly not read the Bible and not encountered passages of Scripture about three guys in the Old Testament named Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were carted off into exile 
by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. In the first chapter of Daniel 1, they with Daniel elected to only eat the things that God had allowed for Jewish people to eat and to avoid and reject the fine foods that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to put on their chef's table. And it was the obedient choice. It was the wise choice. And they prospered because of that choice. So naturally, they were just going to have easy times in exile from then on out, right? No, because two chapters later, the same Nebuchadnezzar who offered them foods that would have been abhorrent to the Jew is now setting up an idol in the community and commanding that everybody fall down on the ground and worship it. And those same guys who refused to break God's commands for a dietary restriction were certainly not going to break a bigger command for idolatry and idol worship, and so they refused. But because they're good, God only allowed good things to happen to them, and they didn't have to be punished in the fiery furnace and go to death, right? No, they had to get in the fire. So Christians who think that the bad things should never happen to good people have clearly not read that story. And clearly don't understand that just because a person elects to do the right thing, the God-honoring thing, the, 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 the wise thing, does not mean that we will not befall difficulty in life. I love the Beth Moore Bible study because it says God always, always, always delivers. Sometimes he chooses to deliver from the fire. You don't have to get in it. Those are great moments, right? But sometimes he chooses to deliver through the fire. It's got to get hot before it gets better. And sometimes... God chooses to deliver by the fire. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could have died that day, and they would have been presented fully blameless in the presence of Almighty God, and yet dead because of the fire. Like God always delivers. Just whether or not it's from it, through it, or by it is the question, and the problem is we will have trouble in life. For me to approach this word and the world around me and assume that I'm supposed to have a better time than those guys, or that I'm supposed to have an easier walk than Paul or Peter, or that somehow I'm supposed to be spared everything bad in life because Jesus already went through it, it's just a person that hasn't read scripture very closely. Because trouble is never an if, but always a when, if it happened to the faithful people of Israel, if it happened to the apostles and the disciples in scripture, if it happened to Jesus himself, it can be a thing that God uses to fortify and to strengthen my faith too. Because the goal, it's in your notes, the goal is to be equipped. God wants good for us. He wants what's good for us. And just because something is good for you doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for you. Romans 8 says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? He's talking about difficult things. If God is for us, who can be against us? Not those principalities, not those spiritual forces of darkness. Who can be against us? He, God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all? all things. The good news of the gospel is not just that we have forgiveness of our sins and remission of our guilt and right standing before God. The good news of the gospel also includes an armor that allows us to go against the attacks that the enemy wants to throw at us because we're God's children. Hebrews chapter 13 sums it up. It says this, verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus. Hey, let's not make no mistake. We're talking about Jesus Christ here, our Lord. May that God of peace, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, like this armor, working in us, that is, 
which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. The, the armor of God is a product of the gospel. And so we get to look at a couple of different pieces of that this morning. The first three that are mentioned, and the first is the, the, the belt of truth. And it's all about your core belief. The belt of truth is ultimately all about your core belief. It says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And ultimately, belt is a really bad English word choice for this because it's, it's far less like a belt, like that accessory that you would put on that just like keeps your pants up because you don't want them to fall down. Like those of us who are parents right now, we realize that our kids' pants come with an internal belt. It's like an adjustable waistband. You can like move the little button around to tighten it or to loosen it as the case may be. Like it's literally just to help it not for the pants to fall down when they go outside and play. Well, I need a belt just because A, it feels weird to not have one on and because, you know, I don't want my pants to fall down and make a really unfortunate move. It's not that kind of belt. Ultimately, the kind of belt that this passage of scripture is talking about is really more like a girdle, which I wouldn't mind one of those some days. Like, if you laughed, I feel really awkward because that means you probably agree that I need it and I don't know what to do in this moment. I've been diving back into this Priscilla Shire Bible study called The Armor of God for this series, and, and she says this. It's in the Bible study about the Roman centurions. Because when the people who are receiving this letter in Ephesus, when they heard these words and when they saw that image, the thing that it made them picture in their mind was a Roman soldier. So when, when Paul is talking about the, the, the belt of truth, they're picturing what that looks like in their minds. And what it looked like was a girdle. It says a Roman soldier girded his loins. I'm sorry I said the word loins. It was actually her. With something more akin to a girdle than a belt. It was probably a really manly one. Most scholars agree that more than any other piece of the soldier's clothing or equipment, this girdle, with its intricate decor and elaborate buckles, distinguished a soldier from a civilian. And we want to be set apart. It wasn't some optional, secondary accessory like the kind you and I might add to an outfit. It was a strategic, primary, focal point of his attire. And then she talks about those wide lumbar supports that like UPS and FedEx drivers wear around their waist because they're carrying heavy packages all day. She says that the sturdy leather girdle of a Roman soldier was made to reach around the entire torso and to provide essential support while he performed the quick, demanding movements of war. Truth is our core support. I'm often the first one to reject words that need a whole lot of explanation. And sometimes we do that at Rolling Hills, I'm just confessing. Like I remember about 12 years ago when we decided to stop calling church members members and to call them partners, my first reaction was, well, we're gonna have to explain what that means to anybody who asks. And I actually love making that explanation. I love telling people that the reason we don't say church membership and that the reason we say church partnership is because membership means a privilege. Like when I'm the member of a Y, and I used to be, you pay your dues, um, because you laughed at me about the girdle thing, it probably means I need to be a member of the Y again. Like when I was a member of the Y, I paid my dues and I had privileges. I had access. I had things that I was allowed to be a part of that people who were not members could not go and be a part of. Membership implies privileges, but partnership means responsibility. And it is a much better picture when you're talking about English words of what it means to be the member of a local church because it's not the member of a fitness club or a country club or a professional association. It's a partner in a ministry of the gospel where each one of us links arms and works together to serve God and the community around us. Partnership, even though I have to spend time explaining it, is a better word for who we are in Christ as part of this church core 
is what we've elected really recently to call all of our volunteer team of ministers. And it's so funny because volunteer is a much easier word. You already know what that means. It means you're not getting it paid and you serve willingly of your own free will. That's great. We have a lot of different volunteer teams. Those who are ushers and greeters and worship team and kids ministry workers, they all volunteer in some capacity. We've actually elected to call them core teams. And I'm going to love explaining this because the core of who we are as a church and the core of how we express our faith in this truth is to serve. We had a celebration launch event when we decided to call everybody the core team, and this is what we explained. We said, when you have a strong core, that's what we want, right? That's what you hear about when people are like, oh, you wanna really tighten your core, you wanna strengthen your core, you wanna use your core. When you have a strong core, it improves your balance and stability. Well, we, we wanna be a really well-balanced church. We wanna be a stable church. We wanna be a strong church. When you have a strong core, your muscles work together. As a church with a strong core, it means our worship team is working with our tech team. Our tech team is working with our first impressions and our volunteers, our greeters, and our ushers. It means that we're working with our student ministry teams and our kids' ministry teams and our preschool ministry teams, that they're all working together to make us a stronger, better representative of Jesus Christ kind of church. When you have a strong core, it ultimately aligns your overall posture. I need a stronger core because then I would stand up straight. I would stand stronger. And ultimately, the posture for a believer is that of worship and that of service. And it takes a really strong core to be able to do that well. So our core strength comes from the fact that we are a people who serve. What's your core belief about God, about this word, about what scripture really is? We have an About Us page on the website that outlines pretty, pretty generally, but also kind of specifically, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about mankind and sin in the world and the future and marriage and eternity and all these great theological headings. We'll go to that page and, and decipher what it is that we believe as a church and what your core beliefs are as a Christian. I'm increasingly aware of the idea of progressive Christianity. It's here in the world, and progressive sounds great. Like, don't we want to be progressive? Don't we want to move into the future and obviously take Jesus with us? But the funny thing about progressive Christianity as a label, according to the historical definition and according to the biblical definition, it's not really Christian at all. You, you look up anything related to progressive Christianity on their About Us page, it says things like this. By calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean that we are Christians who believe that following the path of the teacher, Jesus, that's a red flag. Because where I see the word teacher, I need to insert the word savior. Where, where I see the word teacher, I need to insert the word divinely appointed son of God, Messiah. So, so here it says, we believe that following the path of the teacher, Jesus, can lead to healing and wholeness. Well, that sounds good, right? A mystical connection to God as well as an awareness and an experience of not only the sacred, but the oneness and unity of all life, all of which sounds great, but it's not the definition of salvation from your sin. In fact, it's not even an acknowledgement that you're a sinner. It goes on to say that by calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean that we are Christians who affirm that the teachings of Jesus, okay, good, he taught a lot of great things, provide but one of many ways to experience God. It's pluralism. It means all roads lead to the same direction. It, it, it means we're going to embrace all 
forms of religion and every single type of belief to assume that we're all just on the same path, getting to the same place, just in different ways. There's nothing about the divinity of Jesus and about the exclusivity of Scripture when it comes to understanding who God is and what His work in the world is all about. I'm saved because Christ died. And I can love because I've been loved. I can forgive because I am forgiven. And I serve because Christ commands. I'm created for it. I'm made more like Jesus through it. And others are strengthened by it. What are your core essential beliefs about God and about this word and the truth that it offers? You picking apart just the things that you like and make it easy? Or you diving into the whole thing knowing that we need every single part of it for life? You know, just because something is held onto tight today doesn't mean that it can't fall down tomorrow. We need reminding to remain established. And so the role of the church, the role of these gatherings, the role of even our online experiences, the role of kids ministry and student ministry and, and young adult ministry and older adult ministry, the, the goal of marriage ministry, the goal of community the groups, the goal of everything that we do as a church body is to remind ourselves of the things, the core truths that we've been firmly established in so that we don't fall. Because you need people in your life that when you're standing on a cliff, they will tell you, hey, you're standing too close. You're about to fall. Let's pull you back a bit. doesn't matter how tightly you've held on to that truth today. When trouble comes, you can easily fall unless you've got a strong core and a strong core of people around you who will remind you. Peter writes to a dispersed church. He writes to a, 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 a group of persecuted believers under Nero in Rome right at the end of the New Testament. He says, therefore, in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 12, I will always be ready. That's what we need. We need a bunch of people who will look at one another and say, okay, I'm ready. I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. We need to be each other's spiritual mothers and remind one another over and over and over again what it means to be committed to this truth, what it means to walk in this truth, what it means to hold to it, especially when life gets hard. That core truth is gonna keep you strong. That core truth is gonna keep you connected. We need our core. The next piece of the armor is the, the breastplate of righteousness. And what does a breastplate cover? It, it guards your most important part, your heart. Proverbs chapter 4 says this, above all else, guard your kneecaps. No, because you can live without those. Some of y'all had surgery and you know it. <laughs> above all else, guard your eyeballs. No, because the truth is, how hard it may be, you can live without those too. The truth is, guard your heart. It's what keeps blood pumping and flowing to every other vital organ in your life. Without it, you can't sustain life. Above all else, guard your heart for everything that you do flows from it. It's the breastplate of righteousness that guards your heart. And so we have to ask, okay, it's the breastplate of righteousness. What exactly is righteousness? Because it's that word that we use, but just be honest, like core, like partnership, it kind of needs an explanation. Righteousness is the application of aligning your life to God's rightness or his truth. 
It's looking at this and saying, that's the measuring stick. I want to align my life to it as opposed to my life is the measuring stick. I'm going to align the Bible to my life. Go back to the belt. You see, without the belt of truth providing core strength and support, you are left to bear the weight of your breastplate all on your own, meaning it's your own righteousness that you're counting on. And that breastplate was heavy. It was layers upon layers of metal. It had a chain sheathing underneath. Like it was a strong piece of the armor and it was heavy. If you didn't have a strong core and tight muscles and good posture, you couldn't hold that up. Your righteousness will never hold up on your own. You need the righteousness of Christ in your life. Priscilla Shire in the Bible study talks about three different types of righteousness. And the first is perfect righteousness. And that is reserved for only God. God alone is perfect. And when you compare yourself to the perfection of God's righteousness, ultimately it could and should leave you a little discouraged because there is no way on your own that you can measure up to that. That's the first step towards experiencing salvation in your life when you realize that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and that you can't get to God all on your own. So that perfect righteousness is a picture that we need, but it's also an impossible standard that you will never meet. The second kind of righteousness is compared righteousness. Because while I can never be as good as God, I can very often be better than that guy. And if I'm just looking at compared righteousness, then I can have a false sense of security, be a little bit deceived, be soothed for a moment, think, okay, I'm all right. I mean, I'm certainly not as good as Jesus, but I'm way better than him. Compared righteousness is what most of the world operates on. It's a false sense of hope and security. Because you're operating on being good enough. What we really have to look at is imputed righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus that is applied to our lives so that when the great God of this universe looks at us, he doesn't see our lives of wicked sin and separation. He sees the sacrifice of Jesus applied to our life and his righteousness in our place. Priscilla Shire says that the cross doesn't just take something from you, your sin and your guilt and your shame, which you are ready to give up. It actually gives something to you, the righteousness of Christ in its place, and ultimately the armor of God that you can walk proudly in the world knowing that you've been redeemed. We understand the perfect righteousness of God. We can't get sidetracked comparing our righteousness to others. We need the imputed sacrificial righteousness of Jesus in our lives. The last piece of the armor, it really doesn't feel like armor. It's shoes, it's feet fitted for readiness. They keep a soldier sure and connected. Roman soldier footwear was like half sandal and half boot. Some people wear that kind of stuff today. It's really popular, like this half sandal, half boot. Their footwear had layers and layers of leather on the bottom to protect their feet, and it had these hobnails embedded in a pattern on the bottom layer of the leather. So basically, it was kind of like cleats. And these Roman soldiers would walk around in cleats. You want to know why? Because they're walking around on rocky, sometimes muddy terrain for days and days. You don't want to slip and fall back because these Roman soldiers operated in legions, which is four to 5,000 soldiers in cohorts divided into four to five hundred soldiers in battalions of centurions that are like about a hundred fighting men and when they would march into a community and when they would go off to war they would do it side by side shoulder to shoulder well what happens if I start to slip and fall back now our line is not as strong as it was and I've messed up the line that comes behind me I need to be fitted for readiness to advance and go where God wants us to go 
because you know you're only as strong as your weakest link. Now, I know some of you guys, based on age, not judging, played the game like I did, Red Rover, as a child. Some of you may have been spared that because at some point in life we wised up and thought, that's a wretched, dangerous game for children to play. But back in my day, the teacher would send us out for recess and they would go, one, two, one, two, one, two, one's over here, two's over here, y'all hold hands. And literally, we would call for a child on the other side of the room, Red Rover, Red Rover, sent Sylvia right over. And you would always pick the child that you thought, no offense, was the weakest link because you didn't want them to break the barrier. And basically, that child would take off running and you're holding hands and you would just clothesline her to the ground or she would break your arm coming through. I felt like there were always those moments when the kids on the other side of the room are looking at me going, let's call the weakest link. Red Rover, Red Rover, sent Nicholas right over. Or when we're calling out to the crowd, Red Rover, Red Rover, sent Mac right over. He's looking, hmm, where is the weakest link? And I could rest sure that he was about to kind of come through my elbows and bust us up and then take somebody back as a hostage with him. What a terrible game. <laughs> you know that our enemy is looking around for the weakest link. And he wants to take you back with him. And it's a really dangerous game. And we're only as strong as not only the armor that we wear, but the armor of the others around us. So I need your feet to be sure. Because I don't need you falling back. I need you beside me. I need your feet to be here and planted. Because I don't need you tripping and messing up the line behind us. I need you right here beside me as we move forward. I used to think when I approached the, the armor of God that there was only one offensive weapon and everything else was all about the defense. Not true. These feet, they are offensive weapons. The armor is as much about going as it is standing. Romans 10 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And the idea that our feet are fitted with readiness means that we're on the move and that we are going forward together. That's the picture that would have been conjured up in the minds of the reader of this particular letter. Hey, take on the full armor of God, which in, includes the belt of truth, girded around your waist, providing you strength and core support. Put on the breastplate of righteousness because you've got to protect your most valuable organ and you've got to be lined up with the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is applied to your life. And put on feet, put on shoes that are ready to go forward and to go forward in line and to go forward in strength, to go forward in number with your team, with your people right beside you, taking ground and advancing. Advancing. I said ground like I'm real southern. Taking ground. Ground together. It's advancing the gospel. How beautiful are the feet, plural, of those, plural, who bring good news. And that's what we want to do together. But listen to this. The armor is also as much about crushing as it is resisting. Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, the God of peace. We're talking about Feet that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Under what? Under your feet. It's not going to be bare feet. It's going to be soldier feet. It's going to be cleated, ready, advancing the gospel, soldier feet. It is a long journey ahead, and we've got to go together. 
That means we all have to have our armor. You know, you and I have to be at peace before we can bring peace. We have to be at peace with God, at peace with one another, before we can bring peace to the world. It says feet that are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Pax Romana is the phrase that described and expressed the 200-year period where Rome really experienced a lot of peace. It included the Bible times, the days of Jesus, the days of Paul, the days of Peter. How did they achieve and maintain such a long-standing peace? It's kind of an oxymoron because they did it with a really powerful military, a, a dominant imperialism and military might. The armor of the centurion, the, the legion, it ensured the peace of Rome. And the armor that you and I take on is going to usher in the peace of Christ. Roman peace spread, obviously because of fear and because of power and because of control. You know what else spreads? Uneasiness, discomfort. If you're lacking one piece of your armor, that vulnerability will spread into the rest of your life. If you're not at peace at home, then you're not going to be much good at work. And if you're not at peace at work, you're probably not going to be much good here. And if you're not at peace here, you're not going to be much good out there. Our unease and our discomfort, it spreads. You know what else spreads? The peace of Jesus Christ. Like butter on a roll at the Golden Corral, just melts and goes everywhere. That's what we want. We, we want to be people that are so at peace with God and so at peace with one another and so at peace in spite of the trouble in this world that we take that peace every place that we go. This is an armor that will protect us from the attacks of the enemy when the trouble is big and it is also a weapon to go out there and wage war, not against people, but for people so that they can experience and know the gospel good news, not just little bits and pieces of it, not just the parts that make you feel good, but every single part of it that ultimately calls us to Jesus, connects us to one another, and equips us for the days and the journey ahead. That's what we need. And it's an everyday armor. It's not a put it on when you go to the big game. It's not a put it on when you're preparing for battle because there's always a battle and there's always a war. And when you see it and you recognize it and you're equipped for it, you can take the gospel of Jesus into it and it changes the world around us. That's what we want to be. And it does take all of us. I need your armor to be on and I need you to stand right beside me. I need us to be stronger together than we are apart and to mind our weakest links so that we're strengthened together for the journey ahead. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the joy that we get um, being together in this place, taking time to worship, to sing, to express our joy, but also taking time to lament and express our sorrow, to offer to you our challenges and to beg of you your strength. Thank you for the word that you've given us that equips us to do the things that you've called us to do, to express your love and to share your peace with the rest of the world. 
My prayer today is for every single person here, God, that they would have a strong core because it's built on the truth of God. Not the lies of the enemy, not the comforts of this world, but the truth of you and your word. That they would have a guarded heart and that they would be stronger together than they are apart and that they would be a people who are ready, ready to serve, ready to share, and ready to do those things together which are gonna grow this body and advance your kingdom. Father, for the things that we are dealing with that are difficult, that are challenging, um, that are impossible with our own strength, thank you for the equipping that we already have in your son Jesus through the power of your word to face any battle that comes our way. It's in the name of Christ that we continue to pray. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you enjoy listening to our Rolling Hills podcast, please rate or review us on your favorite listening service. To learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We are thankful for you.